0: morning and welcome to Connect, the California MBA's weekly podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with movers and shakers in the mortgage industry. It's July and it's our final week of the month and we're going to complete our month-long dive into all things legal and uh, uh, litigation within the mortgage industry. We've got a great guest today, excited to get into the conversation with him here in just a minute. But before we do that, let's thank our sponsor over at Accelerate. Accelerate helps lenders close more loans through better borrower engagement. They do this through the industry's most innovative customer experience platform that delivers lead management, sales enablement, engagement, a robust mortgage-specific content library, and data intelligence, all in one comprehensive and highly scalable platform. Accelerate delivers dynamic technology, strategy, and content for every channel of your business to ensure engagement throughout the customer's journey, whether that be with your borrowers, your referral partners, or any other party to the loan transaction. The dynamic enterprise solution seamlessly fits into your tech stack, whether that's your phone integration, your POS, your LOS servicing system, or data enrichment, due to the advanced API connectivity, modern design and open architecture. So gone are the days of managing multiple and separate systems like your CRM, your marketing automation, lead management, and more, and having that data trapped in those silos. Uh, the innovative platform at Encelerate allows you to provide your internal and external customers timely, relevant information based on data intelligence to build repeatable outcomes at each stage of the customer's journey. So bottom line, close more loans, improve borrower conversions, enhance customer retention, transform your customer acquisition lifecycle, and create customers for life. So for more information, visit accelerate.com or you can call them at the number in, listed in the description below. So let's uh, jump into the conversation here. I'm excited to welcome in an old friend of the association, Artin Betpera. He is a shareholder at Buckhalter. Uh, Artin has been involved with the association for a number of years. He actually was a a graduate of our Future Leaders Program a few years back, so uh, happy to have him back in. Artin, welcome.
1: Great to be here, Dustin. It's great to connect. It's been a little while, so I enjoyed catching up with you a little bit uh, before we uh, hopped on to our official podcast. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great to see you. So uh, for those that maybe don't know you uh, very well, uh, let's start with your background. Uh, how'd you get involved in the industry? How'd you wind up as a uh, litigator and and, uh, and sort of what brought you to uh, where you're at now?
1: So it's funny, I when I first decided I wanna be a lawyer, um, I didn't know that there was anything outside of being a, a litigator. Uh, I thought just being a lawyer was, just about handling lawsuits um, and, and dealing with legal claims um little did i know that there's also corporate lawyers there's regulatory lawyers and and a, and a whole panoply of, of different types of lawyers but for me i just really felt like i was hardwired to um be a litigator and and which really at the end of the day i think a lot of it has to do with 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 solving hard problems uh and helping clients navigate through difficult situations in an adversarial environment um, and and you know what I found was that it, it was something that i that I had some skill in in helping my clients through difficult legal problems, and so that's how I really ultimately settled on being a litigator now how I got involved in the in in the mortgage industry sector was quite random, honestly um I was coming out of law school looking for a job, and I happened to answer an ad. I think it was in the daily journal looking for a three to four year lawyer and I'm, i have nowhere near the experience of a three to four year lawyer but let's go ahead and apply and see what happens as it turns out the the firm i applied with was it was a small shop representing subprime and hard money lenders and i remember walking into that interview and 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 the head of the firm asked me hey like so why do you want to get into mortgages and i remember i didn't really know what to say, but I looked out and it was you know' was a corporate tower overlooking all these buildings so i and i and I pointed like, look at all these buildings, all these buildings they have mortgages on them and and this is you know these these this financial vehicle is what you know makes the world go around and i don't know I made something up, but bottom line, they ended up liking me and they hired me and so when I started out right as a as a- new lawyer i was I was representing subprime and hard money lenders, and this was back in two thousand and six so by the time i started maybe three or four months in you know or you know or so we had the financial collapse and so what i like to say is that my career was literally birthed into the financial crisis and that really kind of set what i would later go on to do which is a whole lot of different things touching the mortgage industry sector and having to do with litigation um you know you have escrow and title issues um uh, you have, um, you know, default servicing issues, RESPA, TILA, TCPA, FICRA—the alphabet soup of consumer protection statutes—are um, things that I, I, I have I have helped um, lenders, large and small, throughout the country deal with um, in my career. So it was very, very, I guess, serendipitous in a way how I just kind of fell into this. But I really, um, you know, really have enjoyed my work and, and really take a lot of pride in providing good representation to this industry sector
0: yeah. yeah well you know it uh you know not surprising that uh how you got into the industry i've yet to so yet to meet the person who you know had their mindset on being a mortgage banking attorney you know in uh, high school or something and then went to college to be a mortgage banking attorney i've yet right. to meet that person i don't know they may be out there but you know i've yet to meet them uh, there's, there's like- so much in there though for me as a I'm a bit of a
1: log geek, and there's just a lot in there for me to sink my teeth into from so many different angles. And as I got involved with organizations like the CMBA and met more and more people in the industry, I just really took a liking to folks um, that that you know, work because at the end of the day, my my clients aren't big amorphous entities; they're they're people. They're run by people. They're staffed by people. And so for me, it's really about the people, which is really where I feel like I have a great affinity to when it comes to mortgage banking.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think that especially the uh, the IMB world, which is kind of the the heart and soul of the mortgage banking world, that is definitely not what I think a lot of people who are outside the industry think of when they think of banks and mortgage and and, uh, finance, because it's your point. It is a lot of small businesses or medium sized businesses that are run by people who have built them, built it themselves. And, you know, the passion they have for, uh, you know, uh, mortgages and lending in the uh, um, in uh, housing is I mean without compare, I think, in uh, in the financial world, the passion they have. So I, I think that that, uh, uh, I think, yeah, But well, to that point though, I wanted to uh, sort of delve into this here. What, how did going through that financial crisis, how did that prepare you for this last year? Um, I think that it's very interesting, people who've gone through both crises now, I like to ask them that question, but I think you in particular, having just come into the industry, like you said, kind of birthed into the industry in that time period, how in the world did that prepare you for 2020?
1: I think the one thing it really taught me was the importance of resilience um, because you know just given the nature of the client base of the first firm I work with I unfortunately I lost my job before I even completed my first year of practice and that was a that was a hard thing as a first-year lawyer to be like all right so I, I guess I have a couple of months of experience under my belt I have to now go out and market myself and, and find a new job amidst a, a pretty quickly deteriorating job market um, but I was you know very fortunate to, to land at a, at a regional firm where I spent probably the next seven years of my practice, um, pivoting from, from, you know, different things that, you know, touch either mortgages or, or, or real estate. But I think the th- the key thing it really forced me to do was to be resilient. So when you have those lessons going through the first financial crisis, it's kind of funny because I, you know, I, A lot of the litigation that spawned from that financial crisis is litigation I have handled throughout the years, and I remember times when that the 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 wave of litigation it just seemed like a never-ending tidal wave of lawsuits, and I remember thinking to myself maybe about a year and a half ago before COVID, I I think we're finally through through litigating all this legacy stuff from the last financial crisis, and once you know, as soon as I have my thought, I'm not you know I'm taking no responsibility for. You know causing the next crisis in my mind you jinxed. But, right exactly um uh it is the the next crisis hits, and really, a lot of the lessons I learned from the first time around um applied just as equally in terms of really being resilient and being adaptable and really learning to um you know to to to
0: navigate through troubled waters. Do you think that gave you some perspective too as far as you know i think that i can't imagine coming into the the industry in either at the beginning of either crisis and uh sort of being you know hit with that wave of uh, whether it's on the, whether you're an attorney in the industry or anybody in the industry and just kind of thinking is this the end is this i mean you'd have to think is this the end of our industry and having gone through one of those i think it, it must give you some perspective that okay, this two shall pass, we've been through one of these before, we've been through crisis before, and you know we've come out on the other side. So, I mean, do you think that's uh, kind of giving you that perspective as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, and, and you saw so, uh, you know, in terms of the resiliency I'm describing, like personally, I think you saw that a lot from the folks that came out on the other side and achieved success in the wake of, of what was really, in a a devastating financial crisis. And things played out a lot differently. When it came to the mortgage industry this time around, I mean, you essentially saw, particularly for instance, when it came to refinances or even purchase money because of a really hot housing market, you saw things going in a in a, in a bit of an opposite direction than than you did in 2008. In other words, we didn't have that big cliff fall off, although we were dealing with a lot of different types of adversity during the time. Um, it was it was unique unique from what what was experienced in 2008, um, albeit it was it was a crisis nonetheless. Um, so it was, it was interesting to kind of see how things folded. I think a lot of the things that, at least I had assumed when this, when the crisis first started to foment in early 2020, didn't really come to bear at all. Um, you saw housing, the housing market go white hot. Um, you saw, you know, a huge, huge activity in refinances because of low interest rates. So, you know, definitely it took on a different facade than, than the first time around
0: uh so our team looking forward here now what uh i know that uh one of your areas of uh, uh focus in your practice is on tcpa issues so it whether that or is there another issue that you're keeping an eye on right now as far as trends that uh, uh everyone else should be watching uh, in this year and in 2022
1: uh, yeah i mean uh, i'll address the tcpa i think the interesting thing that myself and a lot of other practitioners in the space have been talking about particularly when it comes to um, you know, institutional clientele um, is is the litigation volume right now. Um, it seems as though, and you know, whether it's because of government stimulus or otherwise, there is not as much activity um, in in filings um, as we saw, say, for instance, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. That's that may perhaps be because we're j- we're just damming things up. And that there will eventually be some kind of reckoning as you know defaulted and bad debt reworks its way out of the system. Um, but that's been one of the most interesting dynamics to kind of monitor is to see the volumes of litigations against different types of entities, whether it's large institutions or smaller lenders, in the lending space, and trying to predict exactly how this is all going to play out. It's really, really, quite honestly, for me, tough to say what's what's ultimately going to end up happening because a lot of this I think is going to be influenced by um, you know what the government's doing, and um, you know different sorts of you know financial stimulus and other policies and things like that, and how those all end up working out at the end of the day. um
0: well, to the that, more- point, I think that there is going to be a uh, um, an, in, or I should say, an increase, maybe large or small, in uh, filings with the changeover and administrations. We've got a new CFPB coming, and a sort of a new, I'm sure, more aggressive approach at the uh, yeah. at least at the federal level than uh, we had in uh, during the Trump years.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you are going to see a lot more regulatory action, um, definitely. I mean, we've had to change the guard in the administration. You're going to have a beefed up CFPB amongst other agencies that are going to be looking to be, you know, whether you want to describe it as heavy-handed or more active in, in, regu- in, in enforcement, um, both on the federal and state levels. I think we can all safely say that, that there is going to be an upswing in that sort of activity. Now, in terms of private litigation, obviously, a lot of that's going to be a function of of the actual operations and activity and and what level that's at. Um, So in terms of, you know, pre foreclosure activity or debt collection activity and things like that, um, those are those are those are really going to be dictated by how much action there is uh, in that space. And it seems like things have been a little bit muted, um, uh, you know, through COVID. Um, but, you know, it could be that once we get past this, you know, past this era um, and things get back to normal in terms of, uh, you know, collecting on debts and working out on defaulted debts, that you're going to see an increase in, in private litigation activity as well.
0: Uh, makes sense. So you know, are there any big cases that uh, uh, you're keeping your eye on right now that are kind of moving through the courts or any, you know, anything uh, specific that uh, lenders should be watching out for? Maybe if I'm an, an in-house attorney, you know, what's what's the big case I should be watching right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to answer that question. I think there's just quite a, a lot going on, but let me answer it in the, in the context of one of my specialties, which is the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. So th- this is a statute is, you know, for anyone who, has a telephone and reaches out to borrowers, whether it be for origination purposes or servicing purposes, um, they're going to know about, right? It regulates, you, you know, automatic telephone dialing systems and and the use of prerecorded calls. It regulates text messages. It regulates calling folks on the national do not call registry. So, there's been quite a lot of activity uh, in that statute, starting earlier this year with a big case out of the Supreme Court called uh, Facebook versus DoGood, and that was really what a lot of us were hoping was it was going to resolve a really hot debate over the interpretation of the statutory definition of an automatic telephone dialing system but what the Supreme Court ended up doing is that they very narrowly interpreted that term and and said that you know you can essentially and i'm paraphrasing here that an ATDS is only a device that can you know somehow uses whether it's by storing or producing a a random or sequential number generator and so it really kind of Car, it, it, it did away with a lot of, you know, both expansive FCC interpretations and interpretations by other circuit courts like the Ninth Circuit and the Sixth Circuit and the Second Circuit that took a really broad view of what type of devices fell within that definition. And so, you know, the expectation was that maybe it was game over for the TCPA. But we've seen some kind of cracks emerge in the Supreme Court's opinion and what's the plaintiffs' lawyers are really trying to do uh, by capitalizing on like a a little footnote in the decision uh talking about how you know uh you know a, a device that randomly sequentially dials from a pre-produced list could could qualify anyways the long story short without really getting into the boring details of that all is that it's given plaintiff's counsel the opening to try to argue to courts that actually Facebook facebook shouldn't preclude them from suing uh lenders and other entities that use auto dialers uh, for violating the statute by using an automatic telephone dialing system. So far, uh, I would say the track record is pretty good in favor of the defendants. There's been about three different decisions that have addressed this argument, all of which has come out in in the favor of defendants. Um, And and so I think the bottom line is, is that given a lot of the uncertainty in litigation, the advice I most frequently give to my clients is that when it comes to Facebook, when it comes to compliance with the TCPA, more or less keep doing what you were doing particularly if if doing what you were doing involved just your block and tackle uh compliance strategies right you want to make sure you have the right type of consent you want to make sure you're honoring consumer requests to stop calls and and revoking consent and i think really the, the 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 benefit of facebook is that it just lowers the temperature of the risk when it comes to using automated technologies to call um borrowers right Um, I think the other thing that it's done is that it's really heightened the risk of other types of technology that's used, like pre-recorded messages, for instance. Um, So plaintiff's lawyers, they have a lot easier of a shot when it comes to suing for pre-recorded messages because the Supreme Court's case in Facebook really didn't touch that particular technology that's regulated by the TCPA. Um, so, So from a litigator's perspective, I think we've seen a lot of very positive developments when it comes to the Telephone Consumer Protection Act uh but from a compliance perspective uh you know i think it's really sh- it should continue to be business as usual um when it comes to just those basic block and tackle compliance strategies
0: so on facebook i'm curious you mentioned that the the court ruled uh, sort of narrowly in that case do you think that there's going to be an opportunity in the near to intermediate future where they uh, readdress uh, tcpa at all so i'm not really sure
1: uh, you know you heard some noise out of congress following Facebook, that they were going to do something in response. We haven't really seen much of anything yet. The the place where I think we're going to see the most activity is going to be with states. And I think one of the biggest kind of topics uh, when it comes to, you know, robocalling regulation has been the Florida's new telemarketing statute. Now, this statute was recently passed, it became effective at the beginning of this month, Um, and I've actually been helping a lot of clients navigate exactly what they need to do To stay in compliance with the florida statute because florida is a huge market Um, there's a lot of you know loan origination activity going on there um and and so uh and so there's been a lot of questions arising out of what do we do in response um uh to to the florida statute and again i think by and large the key to a lot of compliance is going to be simply ensuring that you're getting the proper consent from the people that you're calling and you're when a consumer tells you to stop calls you stop calls um you know i think florida's law was written more broadly so i think it presents a lot of risk so if there's any originators out there and again i'm singling out originators because the law is primarily focused on telephone sales calls not your kind of debt collection type calls uh and so if there's mortgage originators out there if you're if you're calling borrowers located potential borrowers located on in Florida, that's something you really should pay attention to and, and, you know, kind of take a moment to review that statute, consult with experienced counsel, uh, and make sure that you're moving forward in compliance with that law, because we're already seeing lawsuits crop up in Florida, um, suing
0: for violations of that new law. So do you think that uh, talking to your clients that, uh, um, that do business in Florida, are you seeing that, are they building their entire compliance system around Florida now or are they kind of seeing this as a as a one-off and they're you know essentially having dual systems uh set up with everybody else and then Florida
1: so so not really just because sometimes it's really hard to kind of parse out um things on a state-by-state level you have interesting questions prop crop up particularly in terms of we'll if I have a Florida area code but the borrower seems to be located out of state how do I treat that right so there's these nuanced questions that come up uh, and, and oftentimes, you know, kind of a, uh, a, a one-size-fits-all approach is, is usually the safest way. And again, we're not talking about necessarily anything that is going to be unusual. I know a lot of my clients and a lot of lenders in the space are already adhering to protocols where they are, for example, ensuring that they have prior express written consent um, before they call anyone, where they have an internal do not call list and they honor requests to stop calls. You know, I think so long as you're doing that, that that you you have that baseline established that you're you're already doing a lot to mitigate your risk out in Florida. I think the thing that it, you know is of concern is that now there's a private right of action in Florida. Now you can get private lawsuits in Florida and class actions in Florida dealing with these sorts of violations. So really outside of, you know, these these risk mitigation measures that that you ought to be taking, it just presents a, a new level of risk because now you can get sued out in Florida for non-compliance, which makes kind of, you know, ensuring compliance that much more important.
0: Right, right, I know that makes sense. So, I mean, and maybe you answered this, but, uh, you know, maybe looking beyond uh, uh, TCPA issues in, in the Florida uh, issue, what's the most, if I'm a, a, a in-house compliance or a, a, a in-house counsel, what's the most underestimated litigation threat uh, to me and my and my uh, company from your perspective
1: you know i think it's it's difficult to really pinpoint one exact thing right to answer that question uh and i'm not answering i'm, I'm giving you a bit of a non-answer here but it's really there. there's so many an, an amalgamation of different risks given how many different places a lenders operations whether it's on the origination side or on the servicing sites intersect with different types of laws right you can take fair credit reporting act as one example of where you're seeing a lot of different litigation activity whether it's you know due to um you know uh you know, reporting issues whether it's due to uh identity theft issues or mixed filed issues there's there's a lot of activity that's another statute where you know that there is implications in the mortgage lending industry and that is leading to quite a bit of activity when it comes to litigation um, but I would say that really from a more holistic perspective, I think it really is helpful to focus on having a culture of of compliance right where you know where you y- you're taking your obligations seriously where you have robust what I call infrastructure in order to comply with all these different types of laws and I know particularly in dealing with a lot you know I'm sorry I, and I know particularly in you know, conversing with a lot of different in-house counsel, it's a very challenging task. Um, but I think from a holistic perspective, if if companies can have more, oh, my lights went on, I'm gonna, must not be moving. On. There we yeah. go. Uh, but I think from a holistic perspective, um, if, if companies just really uh, maintain a, a, a culture of compliance, um, that is very helpful in terms of trying to keep your organization out of harm's way
0: right no and and i agree and i think the the culture of compliance i think that makes a lot of sense i think it's important the way you put that i think it really does have to be something that's uh, that everyone at the company buys into particularly on the yeah. client side and on the in the c-suite as well um yeah. so i guess if then if i'm again back putting myself in the shoes of uh, in-house uh, counsel or compliance and i'm you know listening to this and i'm running right back to my team and i say okay yes we need to build a culture of compliance yes that's something that we can work on long term but here's the one thing i've got to do right now here's what we've got to do right now that our team that paris says that he's seeing that is a big issue out there and people just aren't paying enough attention to what's the one practical thing i can do right now so dustin i think the one thing
1: at least from my vantage point and particularly doing a lot of work in you know in in the robo calling space is that the florida law is a great opportunity for in-house counsel to take a step back and make sure that their their policies and procedure and operations are in alignment with what the requirements under the Florida statutes are. And this is, again, particularly when it comes to mortgage origination operations where you're either calling leads out in Florida or generating your own leads. Going back and, and, and making sure that you, you have right time zone restrictions, you have proper consents, uh, and that you're not, you know, just simply relying on something that might might be kind of some out, outdated compliance uh, strategies. Um, because uh, the key thing is here is Florida is likely not the last state to step in and pass more onerous regulations when it comes to not just automated dialing, but, but, but making any sort of call for for telephone solicitation or telephone sales purposes, regardless of the type of technology that you use so from from my vantage point and seeing what I'm seeing in terms of the legal developments uh when it comes to telephone sales, I would say that's the one thing take back it's a great thing to kind of drill down into and, and take a closer look at
0: yeah, I think that's good advice, especially because you point out i mean in in sort of the same way that uh, when uh new laws are passed in california they tend to uh spread across the country uh same thing in florida it sounds like this won't be the uh the last place we'll see that uh, uh tightening up the issue there or tightening up the rules there
1: yeah so, and interesting okay. enough, you usually see these things coming out of like california or something like that it it's 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 rare to say that florida is leading the way in terms of a state that's imposing heightened restrictions on on businesses but it's a weird time man
0: yeah, yeah, who knows? Well, don't give uh, California any, any ideas. We'll uh, you know, I'm sure our, our legislators will get right back on that. Um, so uh, we've got time for one more question here. And I know that uh, you've been a big supporter, like I said at the beginning of the California NBA for a number of years. So from your perspective, if you're talking to someone who's not a member, um, what's your pitch to them? What would you say, why have you become, why are you a member of the California NBA? Why have you been a member even, you know, as you've, uh, your career has progressed over the years and you've uh, changed firms what has kept you engaged with the california mba
1: yeah so the california mba actually was one of the first industries trade associations i ever became involved in and i'm fairly certain one of the first conferences i'd ever attended as a young lawyer and i remember and those are you know i can make my way around to conference rooms after you know conferences after many years of experience i remember the first one i went to i was standing around like i don't even know what to do with myself right now i don't know anyone or anything or what i'm doing but i remember meeting you dustin and susan And you guys showed such a tremendous level of support for myself encouraging me to join future leaders and really just being great friends throughout throughout several years of knowing each other and i think that you know kind of going back to one of the original things i said for me a lot of it comes down to the people and the relationships that i'm able to build through my career it's one of the most fulfilling aspects of my career and and it what it's what keeps me going and so when it comes to the people the cmba has great people, both in terms of the folks who are running it and the folks who are members. Um, and I'm proud to say that many of the members of this organizations are, are, are either my clients or, or the clients of, of my firm, um, which by the way, you know is has traditionally been very, very involved in the CMBA as a firm, and, and just has a really great robust team that can help service so many different facets of what a mortgage lender originator or servicer uh, uh, might run into when it comes to legal compliance and legal risk. Um, I I think it's a great way to keep plugged into the industry. And really, I think it engages a lot of great advocacy. One of my favorite events is legislative day. I remember the the first one I ever went to was like taking an adult field trip for me. I was like, giddy from it because we got to go in, we got to sit face to face with legislature legislators, and we got to advocate in real time on behalf of the industry. And I thought that was such a great one of one of the really unique things that the CMBA helps set up year after year. Um, and that really is a hallmark of the type of service that the that the organization provides. Um, and it's always been a great event. I'm looking forward to the next time, hopefully you know maybe next year when we're able to do that in person. And come up and, and 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 meet with you know the folks that are making decisions up at the Capitol, and to really show them like look we're not just some big bad industry or you know it's 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 real people um you know offering real good products and 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 with voices that should be heard
0: yeah Well, Artina, I couldn't have said that any better. And I second you when you say uh, talk about uh, having a legislative day back in person again. We are definitely looking forward to doing that again in uh, the spring of uh, 2022. So, hey, thanks again for joining us, Artina. It's great to see you again. Great to uh, hear your voice, see your face, and hopefully we'll uh, see you at uh, one of our conferences later this year, or at least at uh, legislative day uh, next spring. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Dustin.
0: Yeah. And if you enjoyed the conversation, make sure and subscribe to us here on our YouTube channel. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And we'll be back again next week for another episode of Connect. See you then.